imagine with me for a second, imagine standing on the edge of a cliff, peering down to the vast and the unknown abyss. Your heart races, your palms become sweaty, and a feeling of dread starts to creep in. The fear of the unknown, the uncertainty of what lies ahead can be paralyzing. Sometimes it's as if fear itself has taken the form of a dark cloud, casting its shadow over everything that we see. This fear, this feeling of vulnerability and apprehension isn't limited to standing on the edge of a physical cliff, though. In the journey of life, we often find ourselves standing on the precipice of challenges, difficulties and uncertainties. Could be the fear of failure, could be the fear of rejection, could be the fear of future or even the fear of our own inadequacies. During these moments, we yearn for a beacon of hope, a light to dispel the darkness of fear. And that's really what we're going to look at tonight. A passage from the book of Isaiah offering us a divine message of of hope and encouragement. Of God himself telling us, do not fear. Whether we're facing the towering cliffs of life challenges or the vast expanse of the unknown, this message, it holds a key to finding courage, conquering fear and standing strong even in the face of the most daunting challenges we might face. So if you've ever felt the the shiver of anxiety, the knot in your stomach, or the overwhelming sense of of trepidation, this message is for you tonight. So open God's Word to Isaiah 43. We're going to uncover powerful truths that will help us overcome fear, face our fears by clinging to God's unchanging promises. Isaiah 43, verse 1, should be page 550 in your pew Bibles. I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word when you find that. But now this is what the Lord says. He who is your Creator, Jacob, and He who formed you, Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other people in your place and other nations in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. The title of the message tonight is Do Not Fear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You're great and awesome. You're worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Lord, we need you tonight to come and encourage our heart, to strengthen us in the face of, Lord, who knows what is going on in each life of each person that's here tonight. Lord, we know that our news cycles are always seeking to cause fear. Uh, Lord, there's always something going on telling us this is the next great thing that's really going to To bring devastation and destruction to us. And if we listen to the talking heads on TV. Then Lord we're going to live in a constant state of fear. But Lord even without that. Just our own lives. Lord there's there's always stuff. There's always stresses. There's always trials and tribulations. And circumstances beyond our control. Fear of the unknown. Things that are coming in the future. Things that could happen. And Lord we need to know. The message of this text tonight. We need the encouragement that comes from your word. We need you to speak to us tonight as you spoke to Israel then. 
Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech that I would not be a hindrance in any way to what you want said or to what you want done. Have your way. In every part of the service tonight, speak to us, challenge us, encourage us, strengthen us, draw us closer to you, and help us not to let fear hold us back. We love you, Lord. Have your way in all things. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Isaiah 42, it ends with God speaking some harsh truths to the people of Israel because of their, their persistent rebellion and disobedience. And if we were, if we had read chapter 42 and we had not ever read chapter 43 before, we might expect that, that as it launches into chapter 43, it's going to, to talk about the, the suddenness, the imminence of the judgment to fall upon them. We might expect after the harsh words of Isaiah 42 for God to tell them He's going to send them into judgment and there He'll leave them. But God does the opposite when we jump into where we are. He starts the chapter with, but now. Despite the people's failures, God is transitioning away from judgment and He is going to show them mercy. He is going to bring them back from captivity. He is going to restore them. In this passage, He is offering them an outpouring of of love and mercy and not of wrath and judgment. And as God did this, the nations, not just Israel, but the nations would know that Yahweh alone had done this for His people. Look at verse 1. If you look at verse 1, it says, um, And now this is what the Lord says, He who is your Creator, Jacob, and He who formed you, Israel, do not fear. Then the very first of verse 5, do not fear. Between these two, do not fear, are these really great and precious promises that God gives to the people. They're not to fear the circumstances that they find themselves in. They're not to fear what, what may happen and may come into their life. They're not to fear the troubles and the trials and the tribulations that they're going to face. They're not to let fear hold them back. Not to let fear control them. And what really what they're supposed to do is to to overcome their fear by clinging to these promises God has given them. Rather than being overcome by their fear, they're going to trust in God, cling to His promises. Rather than being overcome by the hard circumstances that they're facing or about to face, they're going to overcome by clinging to God's unchanging promises. That's where the the main idea for us tonight comes from. We face fear by clinging to God's unchanging promises. Now, we're not in exactly the same situation the people of Israel were in. But we are in a world where it seems often everything around us is trying to make us afraid. Again, the news, the talking heads, the all of these things are always telling us doom and gloom is upon us. We're heading into an election season uh, and while I haven't paid much attention yet, I'm certain we will be told repeatedly This is the most important election in the history of our nation. We're likely to be told if it goes the wrong way, whatever the wrong way is, 
then that will bring about the end, the downfall of our nation. We'll all starve to death. We'll die. The right person isn't elected in this next election. All of that's coming. All of that is pushing upon us. And who knows what else will come up. New COVID variants, other things like that that are going to come. The economy this, war with that, China this, this and that. Something constantly is is pushing and pressing and trying to make us afraid. And we need hope and encouragement in our lives just like Israel needed then. And so God makes he makes four statements. All of them, you could say, are prefaced by do not fear. And in these four statements, these four promises. If we cling to them. We can face our fear. We can overcome whatever circumstances are coming. So here we go. The first one. Do not fear, for God has redeemed you. Again, look at verse 1. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. God is reminding them of what He had done for them when He brought them out of the land of Egypt. If we're familiar with the story, we know that they had spent several hundred years as slaves in the land of Egypt. And God sent Moses and Aaron to go and be his speakers. Uh, And yet what God did was deliver the people, not through Moses and Aaron, but through his own great power. Through his power, his glory, his his just ability to rule the world. He orchestrated events so that Israel was not only released, they were essentially pushed out of the land of Egypt, sent on and brought into their own land. Since they were, since he had done all of these people, they, they were his. Right? These, they, they weren't just random people who lived in a place. They weren't even just random people who lived in the nation of Israel. They were his people who were where he wanted them to be at the time he wanted them to be there. Like Israel, we could be afraid. There could be things that would cause us to be afraid. And like Israel, God says to us, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. And we know this. We're familiar with the concept of the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm not sure if we think about it as deeply and as often as we ought to. One of the reasons we as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ ought not be afraid is because the almighty God of heaven has redeemed us. If we have repented of our sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are redeemed. We are His. We're not just random people living in a random place at a random time. Our lives are in God's hands, but not only are our lives in God's hands, He has has actively worked in us to bring us to a place where we belong to Him. And He did this through great power and through great personal cost. We were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold that we inherited from our feudal way of life from our forefathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus as a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead, gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope 
or in God. Right? Our redemption didn't come through perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus came and he went to the cross and he died on behalf of us because of our sin. And I like that it says this was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This was always part of God's plan. God always intended to redeem you and I through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're out on a Wednesday night during the first week of school, the first full week of school, you're likely familiar with the message of redemption through the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And while we always need to be reminded of His life and His death and His resurrection on our behalf, tonight we need to be reminded of why, because of what Jesus has done, we don't have to be afraid. But we don't have to let fear win in our lives because everything that happened for Jesus there happened for our benefit. Now, granted, it did happen because of us. We can't underestimate that. But it was also for us. As we look at the cross, we should see the greatest act of love ever performed for sinful humanity. No one or nothing else in all of history has ever done anything or demonstrated their love for people as clearly as Jesus dying on the cross for us. But we also should take that and personalize it. Jesus didn't just die for humanity. He died for you. He didn't just die for you as a, a person. He died for you as an individual, you specifically. The old song says, while he was on the cross, I was on his mind. There's truth in that. He died for us as individuals. We were a part of the reason that he went to the cross. Our God, the almighty God of heaven. He has given his son so that we might be redeemed. How precious are we in his sight? How important are we to His plan? How much does He care for us that He would cause that to happen for our sakes? Can you see how this message can give you hope and courage? The circumstances of life do not change the fact that God has redeemed you through the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. World events do not change the fact that God has redeemed you through the life, death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have repented of your sins and you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, then God has redeemed you and nothing changes that. The Almighty God of Heaven sent His only Son to die on your behalf. And nothing in all of life, nothing that comes, nothing that happens, nothing you do, Changes what Christ has done. Regardless of what comes, do not fear, for God has redeemed you. Not only has God redeemed us, but do not fear, for God has, has called you. Look again at, at verse 1. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name. 
And we'll get to that in a second. As free will Baptist, we believe Jesus died for all people. We believe the gospel invitation goes out to whosoever will. We believe this is a critically important part of the gospel call. This is why on a Sunday morning I can say whosoever will could come and, and come to Jesus. This is why as, as disciples of Jesus we can go out and we can talk to anyone about Jesus. We can explain the gospel to them and we can urge them to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus because they are someone for whom Christ died. And, and whosoever will can partake of, of everything that Jesus died to purchase. Romans 10 assures us, whoever calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. Since it is God's desire to save everyone, He invites all people to turn from their sins, to turn to Him and receive His mercy and grace. But the truth of verse 1 is better than whosoever will. I have called you by name. Your mind. Yes, the broad call, the broad invitation goes out to whosoever will. But praise God. When He calls us, He calls us by name. He deals with us as individuals and not really as a group. So when God calls you to come to Him, He is dealing with you. As an individual, he is dealing with you as someone specific that he wants to bring to Jesus, someone specific that he wants to save, someone specific in whose life he wants to work in. He deals with us on a one on one basis. Think about Jesus when he went out and called the twelve. For the most part, he went out to them individually and he says, you come and follow me. But this isn't just Jesus. This is basically what we see all throughout the Bible narrative. Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sin. God comes walking in the cool of the day and they go high. What does God do? God goes looking for them. Where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? He's not asking because he doesn't know. He's God. He's seeking them. He's seeking them individually, calling them to come to Him. I was saved one night at the Fort Gibson Free Will Baptist Church. And on that night, God, through the Holy Spirit, called out my name. He said, Stacy, come to me. He didn't holler out that night, hey you! And I just happened to be the one that heard the call and answered. He called me by name. He dealt with me as an individual. I cannot tell you the, the hope and the courage and the encouragement this gives me in my life. One of the most common struggles we face is about the certainty of our salvation. So many things that we do our failures, our sins, our struggles, our doubts can cause us to wonder if we're legitimately saved. And one way to find assurance of our salvation is to remember when we believed. Now, granted, we want to look at our lives and look for fruit. 
But if you can point to the moment when you you realize that the Lord was calling you and you felt what we call convicted. And in that moment, you knew Jesus died for you in a way you had not known before. And in that moment, you, you, you just almost felt compelled to surrender to Christ. Listen, I, I remember when I was saved. I remember having been under conviction for a very long time. I remember the week of revival and every night the Lord dealing with me. And I remember that last night when I knew God was saying to me, come to Him and be saved. And there's many things about my life I don't understand. There's many things I do I wish were different. But I look back on that night and I know I was not responding to a good sermon or an eloquent message because I don't even remember what the man said. I could not tell you one message he preached all week long. But I know there was something in me that was saying, come to Jesus and be saved. It was not an emotional reaction to human words. It was a response to God's call on my life. And if you can look back and remember that as well, you know that wasn't emotionalism. Nobody talked you into it. The, I mean, even the idea, you think about what the Gospel says, what Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Holy Spirit makes us aware of, of our sin, of our lack of righteousness, and the judgment to come. What was it? All of us, before we were saved, we, we were fine with our sin. We were fine with the way we were living. We, we thought Jesus was maybe just okay, but we didn't see why we needed Him. What changed? We didn't just suddenly smarten up one day. There was something outside of us that began to press on us and opened our eyes, as it were, to see, I need Jesus. Jesus just didn't die for sins. He died for my sin. Listen, if we can go back and we can remember, you know what? I remember before and I remember the night I realized and I remember when I came. Then I can look back and I can say God has called me to Jesus. I am saved. I am redeemed because I remember the night I was called. I remember the night He dealt with me. Can you see? How this message can give hope and courage. The circumstances of life will not change the fact that God called you by name to come to Jesus. World events will not change the fact God called you by name to come to Jesus. Regardless of what comes, do not fear for God has called you by name. Thirdly, do not fear for God is with you. Look at verse 2. When you pass through the waters and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Now there is a promise here of protection through tribulation, through troubles. The waters won't drown you. The flames won't destroy you. 
Now this, of course, is a promise God has faithfully kept to the nation of Israel. They have gone through the fires and through the floods, and yet they persist. How could they persist if it wasn't for a God who was watching over them and protecting them? But, but for this people individually, how, would, how could they be sure that God would continue to watch over them? God would continue to guide them. Verse 3, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Yahweh wasn't just God. He was their God. He was their Savior. He was the God of Israel. And because the Lord, because Yahweh was their God, and because He was their Savior, they could be certain that He would protect them. He would help them. Now, the the, the exact wording of this is important. Because this doesn't promise that when the waters come, that a bridge will miraculously build and we'll go over the top of it. That the promise isn't that when the fires rage up, that they will not come anywhere near us. In fact, it, it explicitly says... We will go through the rivers and we will be in the fire. Our Lord does not promise we won't endure trials and tribulations. He does not promise hardships will not come into our life. In fact, God's word promises us just the opposite. 2 Timothy 3.12 assures us. Anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus assures us we will have difficulties and hardships in this life. The promise is not that we won't face them. The promise is God will be with us as we face them. The promise is that God will protect us as we go through the fire, as we go through the water. Look quickly. Hold your finger here. We are coming back. But look quickly at Psalm 121. Psalm 121 is such a great psalm. I wanted to look at it again. Do really quickly. We don't have a lot of time. But just to to give you this picture. I, I will raise my eyes to the mountains. From where will my help come from? Now, this picture of raising our eyes to the mountains probably doesn't make a lot of sense to us. But in... In ancient cultures, it was thought that the high places were where the gods dwelt. Because the gods dwelt in the heavens. And so the the higher up you were, the closer to the heavens you were, the more likely there was to get help from the gods. So the psalmist asked, does our help come from the mountains? If we go high up on the mountains, is our help found there? And he says, no, our help comes from the Lord. Who made the heaven and the earth? He is not the God of the hills. He is not the God of the valleys, the God of the ocean. He is the God of all of it. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Behold, he who watches over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. Now, allow your foot to slip. This was a a psalm that they sang as they walked up to Jerusalem during some of the holy festivals. So it's a a pilgrim psalm. 
So it pictures people not sitting in church just singing, but, but walking in the way of the Lord. And as we're walking in the way of the Lord, the promise is our foot will not slip. And it doesn't slip because the God who watches over us, He does not slumber, nor does He sleep. Again, in the ancient cultures, a God who did not answer prayers was often seen to be asleep. And that was a thing. Certain the gods had to rest. Not so with Yahweh. Yahweh never sleeps. Yahweh never slumbers. He is always awake and He is always on guard. The Lord, Yahweh, is your protector. He is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not beat on you by day. The shade makes sense when you see that. The the sun. Now, I've never been to Israel, but I've seen pictures. And I'm assuming walking up the hill to Jerusalem was an uncomfortable feat. What with the desert climate, the heat beating down. You can see the value of having shade over us as we walk in a desert climate. The picture is God protecting us even from the sun. That it will not beat down upon His people as they walk. Nor the moon by night. Now, we don't think much about being what they called moonstruck, but it was a real thing that they understood at that day. It was just as severe as as a sunstroke was. And the picture is God watches over us by day and God watches over us by night. He protects us from evil, not just physical evil, but but he will keep our soul. And that's good stuff right there. How do we stay Close to the Lord, how do we keep from falling away when prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. He keeps our soul. Isn't that good? Isn't it good that as we try to walk away, God grabs us and pulls us back? As we, like sheep, go astray, the shepherd comes and he draws us back into the flock. Isn't it good that he leaves the ninety and nine and comes for the one? He doesn't just watch over our physical bodies. Much better than that, He watches over our souls. And He guards our going out and our coming in from this time and forevermore. Hallelujah. Now again, this is not a promise that we won't face difficulties. This is a promise that our God is there in the midst of the difficulties. Right, go back, turn back to Isaiah, because it's explicitly listed there. When you pass, verse 2, look at verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Look at verse 5. Do not fear, for I am with you. Everyone in here tonight, we know we will go through the fires and the floods. We've been there. We've had those times. We've been in the trials and the tribulations. We may be there right now. So anyone who ever promises you that if you just have enough faith, the hard times won't come, the tribulations won't happen, the fires and floods will never come into your life, you look at them and you say, liar! And then you turn and walk away and you never listen to anything they have to say again. And you look for something better. The better is not that God keeps us from trouble. 
The better is that God is with us as we go through the trouble. The better is that God is there. And again, I will be with you. Oh, I love this, right? This isn't God in heaven looking down, going, you can do it. I believe in you. You can you can make it. Come on, don't give up. He's not doing that. Instead, God is is with us. And he's going, come on. Come on, you can do it. I, I got it. See, and he's leading the way. Jesus walks and his sheep follow him is what he says in John 10. So he's not, he's not even behind us pushing us. Come on, keep going. Slacker, my gosh, what is wrong with you? Instead, he's in front going, come on. Come on, I got you. You're okay. Keep going. Keep with me. He is with us in the trials. He is with us in the fires. He is with us in the flames. And he is leading us through it. King David said it well. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why did David fear no evil? Was it because he was a great warrior? Because he had a large army? No. For thou art with me. David knew what it was to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He knew he was not promised not to have hardships and trials. He had been chased by Saul. His sons had rebelled against him. He had been in many battles. And through it all, what sustained him was the fact that his God was with him. His shepherd was right there. We have just as sure a promise of our Lord Jesus Christ being with us as the Old Testament saints did that Yahweh would be with them. One of the last things Jesus said before he ascended into heaven was, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. This promise is for all who have repented of their sins and believed the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you see how this message can give you hope and courage? Circumstances of life may be hard, but they do not change the fact that your God is with you. World situations may be bad or scary, but they do not change the fact that your God is with you. If you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then God is with you and nothing ever changes that. Do not fear, for God is with you. And then finally, do not fear, for God loves you. Look at verse 4. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored, and I love you. Israel was precious in his sight. He honored them. And he did this because he loved them. Now we've been in Isaiah for a very long time. And we haven't gone verse by verse through. We've sort of jumped around once we got to chapter 11. But is God giving this message, I love you, you're precious, to a perfect people? Is he given this message to a people who were always fully devoted servants of the Most High God? He's not. He has given this message to a wayward people, to a rebellious people, to a people a few minutes earlier he was talking about pouring out on them the heat of his anger and the fierceness of his wrath. These people often slid back. They often went after the gods of the nations. They often did what they ought not do. And yet, they were precious in His sight. He would honor them all because He loved them. This is one of the great mysteries of God's amazing grace. Humans are very often hatefully rebellious 
against God. And yet they are deeply loved by God. This is an amazing fact about God. Those whom He loves, He loves intensely. Our God does not do anything superficially or half-heartedly. He loves us with an everlasting love. And He saves us to the uttermost. But it's not just Israel. It's us as well. And the good news about it being to a rebellious people is good news for us as well. Do you ever find yourself, you read through, and you see like in Judges or some of the, the, the King's books, how the people are rebelling and you think, my gracious, what is wrong with you people? I do. And then the Holy Spirit says, um, <clears throat> Stacy, and I'm like, oh, oh yeah, me too, Lord, me too. And I rejoice that God doesn't smite us out of existence the moment we blow it, the moment we rebel, when our hearts turn and go the wrong way. God's love for sinful humanity is indeed one of the most wonderful mysteries about our great God. It is really important for us to understand that, that we are precious in His sight. And He loves us. How precious are we? Well, so precious that as He looked down upon us in our sin and our rebellion, and He saw the just judgment that awaited us, that wasn't what He wanted for us. He desired a relationship to us where He would pour out His love upon us and we would return that love back to Him. However, our sins created a barrier between God and us, a holy God, could not lavish His love on a sinful people in the ways that He wanted. And the only way for this barrier to be officially, completely, legitimately removed was through the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's only begotten Son had to come and die on the cross for our sins. I mean, just make a mental list of every person who is precious to you. And every person that you personally would, would die for, you would give your life so that they might live. If you're like me, it's a small list. But let's make the list smaller still. Make a list of those that you would give your child's life that this person who is not your child may live. How was how that list? Well, my, my list is empty. There are zero people on this earth I would give one of my children to die for. And yet that is exactly what God has done for us in sending Jesus to die for our sins. The Apostle John wrote it this way, but by this the love of God was revealed in us that God has sent His only Son into the world so that we may live through Him. This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us, sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God loved us with deeds and not with words. Deeds specifically of sending Jesus to die on the cross in our place. And He didn't do this because we loved Him. Notice, in this is love, not that we loved God. We didn't. Now granted, we weren't alive when Jesus died, but we have all lived significant portions of our life without caring 
about God. Without loving our God. And he did that for us knowing that we would live portions of our lives without loving him, without caring about him. And yet he still sent Jesus to die in our place. Any affections we have for God, any feelings of love we have for him are only a response to his great love for us. The story is told of a great theologian. He wrote a book summarizing all he had learned from all of his years of scholarly studies. In the very last chapter, he was going to summarize the most important lesson he learned in all of his years. According to the story, it was the shortest chapter in the book and it just contained these words. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. If our God has loved us this much, is he likely to give up on us in the hard times and the trials? Is he likely to have let us go through it without being there with us? Is it likely he's not going to do these other things? That he's not going to be actively at work in our lives? It's not likely. The Apostle Paul says that if God has given Jesus for us, surely we can believe he'll do everything else. If we can really wrap our minds around what Christ has done for us on the cross and that it was undeserved, I think if there is any aspect of it, I think we as people, and I say as Americans because it's all I am, it's all I've ever been, but we are at our best self-righteous. And the idea that God would die for us, that Jesus would die for us, we think, well, yeah, He should have. That was the right thing for Him to do. But according to whom? I mean, what pressed upon God from the outside that forced Him to send Jesus on our behalf? There's nothing. God is the highest standard of all things. He is the highest standard of righteousness. He is the highest standard of judgment. He is the highest standard of love. But there was nothing outside of God that said, you have to do this. There was just God and His desire to do this for us. His willingness, His wanting us to be saved, to send Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. And if we can really grasp, we did not deserve that. Nothing made God do this. And if God had left us as we were, if He had not redeemed us, if He had not called us, if He had not loved us, if He had not sent Jesus to die, He still would have been a just and a holy and a righteous God. But in love, He sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins. We can applaud and endure and not give in to fear. When we know our God loves us with that kind of love. Can you see how this message can give you hope and courage? The circumstances of life do not change the fact God loves you. World events do not change the fact God loves you. Do not fear for God loves you. And again, this is specific. 
Yes, does God love humanity? Absolutely. But he doesn't just love humanity as a whole. He loves you as an individual. He loves me as an individual. The world seeks to fill us with fear. But our God seeks to fill us with faith. We must hold tightly to these unchanging promises as we go through our lives. Let them be an anchor during the many uncertainties of life. As we face uncertainties, as we face trials and fear, let's be sure to remember the assurance we have in our redemption and the intimacy of our calling that God called us individually in the constancy of God's presence in our lives and the overwhelming depth of His love for us as individuals. Let these words from our God written by Isaiah be etched in our hearts. Do not fear. For I am with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You're great and glorious. You're wonderful and worthy. Let us take these words and do let them be etched into our hearts. And as fear tries to come with the certainty of these promises, the unwavering nature of these promises, guard and say, get out of here. You have no place. As doubts arise during trials and tribulations and we wonder, Where is our God? Remind us, I'm right here. I've never left you. I've never forsaken you. And I never will. As we wonder if our God cares, let us look at the cross and say, absolutely, He does. And if we wonder, does our God, does my God care for me? Let us remember that you reached out to us as individuals. You called us as individuals. These truths anchor us to you. The storms will not blow us away. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.